This podcast was recorded on July 8th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and is subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here uh, hosting today Jeff Sherman with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, we have a very, very special guest, someone we've been trying to get on the podcast for a while. Uh, we have Bob Brinker uh, joining us today. Uh, Bob is a well-known financial advisor. Um, he's a radio host. He had a Money Talk, his program, uh, for over 30-plus uh, years. Uh, I think it started back in 1986. Uh, you're supposedly retired from radio, but you still put out your newsletter. Uh, one of the hardest men, working men out there in the business. So welcome, Bob. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be with you. Yeah. So um, before we jump in here, just because we're and talk to you today, uh, we just want to give a quick recap of what's happened in the markets uh, since the last week. I know volatility has died down significantly. Markets continue to take up. But why don't you just give us a quick recap, Sam, that we spend most of our time with Bob today. Sounds good. So what we have in the markets, let's take it through a um, through June 30th so we can take a, a quarterly wrap up here. So on the S&P 500, what we saw in the second quarter uh, was a whopping 20.5% gain in the index for that second quarter, um, closing out the year through June 30th at negative 3.1%. On the Barclays aggregate for the second quarter, we, it was up 2.9%, uh, rounding out the year at 6.1%. Moving out onto the commodities front for the front month futures, on starting with gold, uh, up about 14% for the quarter and 18% for the year, both positive prints there. For uh, LME copper, we saw 21.5% for the uh, second quarter with a negative 2.4% for the year and WTI crude oil futures up a whopping 92% in the second quarter of 2020, still making it down for the year at negative 36%. Yeah, Sam, on that point, you know, just looking at those markets too, for those of you that <clears throat> do as I've been calling it, the Rick Van Winkle approach to investing, I'm sure, Bob, you, you think, think something like that as well. If you look at the first half of the year and you didn't really experience it, down 3% on the S&P, up 6 for the ag, you say, hey, maybe it's just kind of a weak economy out there. Uh, that's why the markets are how they were. Um, but it doesn't um, really feel like that experience, that six years we spent uh, through the first half of the year is what it felt like when it's through there, all that volatility. So quite, a, quite amazing to see this pronounced recovery in, in a lot of these financial assets. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, as you pointed out, Jeff, these are some of, you know, those, as you mentioned, the S&P 500 and the ag there, those are really the the points uh, within asset classes that the Fed may or may not have a some influence on. But if you take a look at some of these commodity futures, you know, mostly if you take a look at WTI crude oil and then compare uh, with that negative 36 percent on the on the year to date, and then gold futures up almost 20%, you know, that gives you a little bit different picture there. So, yeah. Uh, and then copper actually kind of masked a little bit of the issue too, just simply because we saw copper really erode in the fourth quarter 
when the virus first broke out in China too. So China being a big consumer there, there was that impact there. So seeing that um, kind of that first half number kind of uh, disguises some of the the impacts we've had in the global economy. But yeah, that's right. So moving on to to sovereign um, yields here, starting with at the ten year point of the curve, starting off U.S. Treasuries. Um, it closed out the second quarter pretty much unched from the where it closed off the first quarter of the year, just uh, down one basis points at 66 bips uh, as of June 30th, 2020. 10-year boon uh, up two basis points to a negative 46 basis points uh, on the yield. And then JGBs uh, managed its way off of the zero point and closed uh, the 630 um uh, print at a positive two basis points. Moving on to um, uh, spreads on cash bonds here, we saw that uh, across the board on the areas that we look at, they uh, tightened along with the, the risk the risk on sentiment that we saw for the second quarter with IG uh, OAS at 150 basis points. That's in 120 basis points over the over the second quarter. Uh, high yield at uh, 650 basis points in about 230 basis points over the quarter, and then 385 basis points on the spread for EM, and that's in about 165 basis points on that quarter. Um, yeah, so I think on- that that was a big, you know, there's a big risk rally. You know, that wasn't exactly the wides and spreads. I think the wides happened about a week before, you know, the first quarter when you look at IG investment grade corporate bonds as well as high yield. Uh, corporate bonds. Uh, EM was was roughly around the same time period, but we did see some of the securitized space really didn't get to those wides until really mid to late April. So uh, it has been uh, a big, big rally in risk assets. And so I think that, that's a good segue, Sam, really to jump in. So let's get our guest on, on here and get some of his opinions on what's going on um, in these marketplace, how he's thinking about it, how he's providing advice to his uh, readers of his newsletter out today. But before we do that, Bob, I'd like you to step in and, and tell us a little bit about your uh, background. You know, you publish your your letter out there to the market timer, which I, I love the phrase how you say it's leading you to the land of the critical mass. Uh, you've been doing that since you hosted the radio show back in the mid 80s as well. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into the industry uh, from starting at LaSalle, um, you know, getting your MA in finance at Temple to really getting into the industry. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background for those that aren't familiar with you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Yes, really, uh, I would say, like many of us, uh, I first became interested in the subject of investing when I was in college and then on into graduate school, of course, uh, studying in that area as well. And uh, I decided um, this is fun. So I took a job at uh, Provident National Bank in Philadelphia, which has since been absorbed by uh, larger banks in their bank portfolio division. This is a division of a bank that most people know nothing about. I'm sure you do, and Sam does, but for most people, the bank portfolio division uh, would would get a blank stare. But the bank (laughs) portfolio division is the division where the bank's money is managed. Uh, That's what makes it totally different. And in managing the bank's money, we were uh, managing uh, all kinds of assets in a portfolio. Uh, it was weighted toward fixed income securities, of course, as all bank port- portfolios must be. And we did other things in that uh, division, we, uh, which was uh, a great learning experience for me. 
we advised smaller banks on uh, how to run their investments. And we also, and this was a, a great learning experience, we also did merger and acquisitions. So I was anxious to do the merger and acquisition work uh, to advise the smaller banks as well as being involved with the bank portfolio. So that was a, a, a tremendous learning experience at Provident. And then and that's a lot on. for a first job. I mean, that that is a, a lot of areas to cover. I mean, it must have been just a, a great, as you said, it was interesting. It must have been a fascinating experience to sit there and 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 just see all facets of how not just a bank runs, but also just the investment world as well. Yes, Jeff, and especially when you would be involved in the merger and acquisition area, where you would literally be taking the uh, the balance sheets of two banks and trying to meld them in a way that uh, the capital was being properly allocated to the shareholders in the successor bank. So uh, uh, it, was, it was an incredible experience. And, well, that was probably uh, back third. also when you could actually analyze banks before they were such mega conglomerates and had all these arms everywhere around the world. It's probably a little bit easier. No, no faint task, I'm sure. Banking was a lot simpler in those days. Your point is well advised. So after that, I moved on to the Bank of New York at 48 Wall Street, right there in lower Manhattan, in their investment council division. And in that division, we advised institutions and wealthy investors on how to run their portfolios and invest. I was able to join the New York Society of Security Analysts while I was at the Bank of New York. That was a great experience because we had weekly luncheons where we brought in uh, top people. I can remember Fred Smith in the earlier days of Federal Express coming in. I remember the founder of Wendy's, Wendy's coming in, the founder of Marion Labs, who was involved with the KC Royals back then as an owner. He came in, and we would get to meet with these CEOs and top people uh, hard to describe the learning experience that uh, that was there at the New York Society of Security Analysts, and they're still going strong. Yes. And after seven years at the Bank of New York, um, I moved on to a, a position that was particularly unique, uh, a chief investment officer position for the British company, which has since been absorbed by uh, a European company, that was Guardian Royal Exchange back then, and uh, my position was to run their United States portfolio for all of their U.S. insurance companies, which were spread out all over the place, and uh, we consolidated all of the money in the portfolio in the holding company in New York, and so uh, that was a great CIO experience for 11 years at Guardian Royal Exchange. Uh, we our division was GRE of America. And uh, after doing all of that, I felt that I had learned a few things, and uh, I had established the Market Timer Investment Letter, and uh, that is uh, where we are today. We are in year 35 of the investment letter, covering the investment markets, uh, publishing model portfolios, and looking at the economy, monetary policy, valuation, and for timing purposes, we especially focus on technical analysis. So uh, as you know, Jeff, uh, covering the investment markets is something that gets in your blood. Uh, it, presents, it presents a challenge every day, sometimes new challenges like this spring that we might rather just not uh, have. 
And but it's always something you look forward to, and so it's unique in that respect. I enjoy it. No, that that's fascinating too. And so I think I think that's all why we continue to do it. <clears throat> you know, the the trials and tribulations we all go through. There's it's an ever evolving puzzle, as I think about it. And there's always new challenges. There's new curveballs. So maybe maybe we can kind of um, transition that direction. You know, you, you talked about perhaps uh, forgetting about the spring. Um, let's think about what happened there, though, real quick. Uh, we obviously had a health pandemic. We had a liquidity problem. Uh, the lender of last resort showed up, shored up with a, a bazooka that we've never seen in size before, a new set of artillery to help bring liquidity to the market. How are you thinking about that? Because you, you mentioned, you know, you're obviously on the fundamental side. You use macro. You talk about the technicals. H- how do you start to integrate these ideas of liquidity and what the Fed has done to the markets or the support the Fed has provided versus saying they've done something, the support they provide to markets. How are you thinking about that and, you know, talking to your clientele about that? Well, I'm not much of a wrestling fan, Jeff, but I am familiar with the tag team wrestler. And <laughs> I, think, I think that's what Jay Powell did. Jay Powell became a tag team wrestler literally overnight in March, specifically in late March. And he, he tagged out to his partner, and that was, of course, uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. And they teamed up to form one of the most powerful wrestling teams of all time, <laughs> because basically, basically they threw everything in. And then after they saw they threw everything in, then they threw in the kitchen sink. It was an incredible uh, development. So you had Fed Chair Powell and his all-in support for the economy, uh, literally stating that uh, he was going to do whatever it takes, borrowing, kind of borrowed a phrase from Super Mario Draghi there, uh, whatever it takes to get the job done uh, during the pandemic. And then he reached out yep. to uh, Secretary uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, and they got Congress in the act, and Congress uh, threw in another kitchen sink. And here we are. And uh, our uh, it's funny because... When it struck, uh, initially in March, we published what we call an interim message. We call it a special subscriber message. And in that message, we told our subscribers that uh, what was needed was a bridge, a bridge across this pandemic gorge, if you will. And uh, that's what happened. Uh, The bridge was constructed by the tag team, and it included all of the facilities that J-PAL dreamed up. And it also included all of the uh, bills that have been passed by Congress, uh, literally taking chapters out of all of these books that we've become familiar with over the last couple of decades, not the least of which is Ben Bernanke's helicopter money theory. They took that one and said, let's go with that, and they dropped all that money on uh, tens of millions of individuals back there in April with the direct payments. And uh, they came up with ideas that nobody even ever thought of. Uh, example, uh, the, p- the payroll protection program. Another example, uh, federal unemployment insurance on top of your state. Uh, I mean, uh, in terms of using the imagination, um, they made Disney look like uh, a beginner. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that, too. I mean, so... Uh, this new tag teams formed. They became instantly tag team champions of the world. Um, Absolutely. You know, yeah, I mean, there was no doubt about that. 
I, I like the idea you're talking about it's a bridge. At least it's not like the old um, bridge to nowhere that we've heard about before of creating GDP, right? Um, I, had, I don't know I whether they built that one or not. <laughs> yeah. But also the helicopter I thought was interesting too because the stimulus checks that you're talking about, they were, they were like 4X what we saw from the Bush administration when they had done that, that program before, yeah. right? Yeah. So everything has this large multiple of what it had been in the past. And I think it is interesting you mentioned that the, the PPP, the, the Paycheck Protection Program that's out there, as well as the unemployment benefits, because that's something that we've been really discussing in um, uh, on the uh, our virtual trading desk these days, but in our investment meetings, as well as our macro thoughts, is wh- how well the consumer has responded in spending, in income increases, all due to these programs. So how are you thinking about that? So that was a good little bridge. It's plugged the gap. We know the PPP will continue hopefully for another month or so, depending on when people actually uh, got that out. But how are you thinking about the implications? Do you think Congress can come through and that other half of that tag team champion um, uh, can get together and put out an extension of these benefits? What do you think it looks like? Because Obviously, this doesn't look like any recession we've ever seen where the consumer is actually, you know, getting income replacement. Um, you're getting, in some cases, incremental income. Uh, you got this helicopter money coming through, and it's kind of distorted some of these income and consumption data, at least from a traditional sense. That's very true, Jeff. And uh, let me preface my comments about what I expect next uh, with uh, the observation, which I think we're all learning. When you look at the culture of the United States, it is clearly not designed to respond well to the need to things like face coverings to prevent spread of a virus, to practice physical distancing in order to prevent spread of a virus. Uh, The culture of the country is not well suited to those kinds of Uh, rules, if you will, uh, in order to reduce spread. And so, as a result, you see what we're seeing is the unbelievable statistics coming out of some of the states. So, unfortunately... It's alarming. So, it's sad. And it's also sad, uh, one more thing on this point, that the virus, and I would have never been able to imagine this happening, but it's here. The virus has become a political issue. Uh, I find this astounding, but it's true. And so this is one thing that can never happen in a pandemic is for politics to intercede on developments, and that has happened already. So we're dealing with all of these things as we try to make progress on this. But uh, that's just a preface to my comments. I do expect another package from Congress. Uh, We had an interesting comment uh, very recently that any further – helicopter money drops, payroll payments directly to citizens should be limited to to those making $40,000 a year or less. I support that because that money is therefore going to get spent because they are the people in the one, as you know, in the 100% propensity to consume uh, category. Those are the people that should be getting the money. I I thought that they're the ones that need it more than more than most, probably because of how they're the right. Well, it's because the unemployment uh, or the, the lack of jobs and the layoffs have happened predominantly in those lower income cohorts as well. So think about what you're saying. Uh, you have the two things that are required for a helicopter drop to the people who need it and 
The second thing, to the people who will spend it. Right. These, these monies are not meant for stock market speculation that we hear about. Uh, they're not meant, frankly, to go into your savings account. The money is meant to be spent to help you get through in the form of relief of a very grave situation. So uh, I very much uh, support uh, limiting it, whether the number is 40 or 50, they can iron that out, but I very much support that. You know, you mentioned the, the George W. Bush checks that were mailed out uh, in the beginning of the millennium. Uh, yep. You may have received one. Believe it or not, I received one. I think it was $300. And I thought, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life, to send a $300 check to me or to Warren Buffett. I'm right. not making a comparison, but Bill Gates, anybody. Uh, it, it makes no sense. You should send that money to the people uh, and make sure it's going to the ones who need it and will spend it. And so you talk about absurdity. That was absurdity. So I think that they're getting some good ideas to get it toward the 100% propensity to consume population that will get spent. And that also limits the money you're paying out because you're not paying out money to Jeffrey Sherman. That's right. That's right. And um, as much as I like it, um, it would be nice. But that being <laughs> said, I, I, do, I do understand that. And so I, I think, you know, as as we look at this, too, as you'd mentioned, you know, the, these are kind of in uh, the, you have this big juxtaposition of economic data that, you know, if you're looking at very short term data appears to be improving. It's looking well, like I said, the consumer, the consumption side, the income has been increased because of this this direct infusion. Um, however, you brought up the idea that we're seeing this resurgence of the virus. And so, you know, th there had been this talk that perhaps Congress wouldn't want to extend the benefits because they're looking at some of this economic data. There's still kind of a lot of folks are still talking about the greatest economy ever. Um, and so from a standpoint of, you know, the willingness for Congress to to um, extend out or modify these programs, it seems to me that it's it's um, it's a much lower hurdle to overcome at this point, given this resurgence. Would you agree with that? Well, Jeff, first of all, I'd like to take a very strong issue with anybody uh, that is saying anything related to the greatest economy ever. <laughs> they're, not do they're not doing their homework, Jeff. Uh, payrolls yeah. right now, right now, payrolls are close to 15 million workers below where they were in February. And as you know, yeah. many of these jobs that went by the wayside in March and April, they're not coming back. That's right. That's right. And, and you even look at the Fed's the, forecast. You know, the Fed's even talking about north, a double-digit employment rate near the end of the year. And as you mentioned just there, too, that doesn't even count a lot of the people who don't uh, who think they're temporarily laid off that will be back, that think they're going back and their job is still there. Right. Also, you cannot talk in terms of the greatest economy ever, which is frankly, one of the silliest notions I think I've ever heard for anybody to say that today. Um, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that the recovery pace itself is closely tied to the course of the coronavirus, which is an unknown. So we can't talk in those kinds of terms, unfortunately. Yeah, no, fair enough. And hopefully you don't think I was making that phrase up. And, no, uh, I know you wouldn't. Have, yeah. I would know you, you would never make that comment. No. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you you mentioned that, too, that it's depend on the path of it. But let's talk about the economy from the global financial crisis prior to this pandemic. It was long in tenure, right? It was uh, an expansion, depending on how many, I think it was 45 quarters or so 
um, of expansion. But you look at the growth rate of that, and even on a cumulative basis of expansions, uh, the cumulative growth rate was sub sub what we've seen in many other expansions. Um, and also that annualized growth rate has been quite low. How are you thinking about you know, when we go back to opening things that let's say we control the virus and you know, uh, again, a lot of uh, positive things happen. What do you think that growth trajectory looks like given the debt burdens that we have, both public, private and private sector, um, and the overhang you see there, and that we were struggling to really do you know, something in the low twos, call it 2.1, 2.2% real GDP growth over that period since the financial crisis? Well, Jeff, as you well know, the long-term growth rate of the economy is the sum of population growth and productivity growth. This is something that never changes. And it's quite interesting, and we've talked about this frequently in the investment letter over the years here during this recovery over the past decade, that um, it's almost impossible to get beyond, I mean, on a long-term basis, on a sustainable basis, to get beyond the sum of productivity growth and population growth for real GDP growth. And that's exactly what's happened. And that's the reason that our compound annual rate over the last decade has been very close to 2%, because that happens to be essentially the sum of productivity growth and population growth. And so I don't see anything changing in that regard. So after we get whatever bounce back we're going to get in the 21 22 period, uh, I agree with the Federal Reserve's projections in June that the long-term growth rate will return to close to 2%. I think they're using the same input I'm using. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And, um, uh, you know, I guess especially with, you know, this focus on immigration policy, lower birth rates, I mean, um, and then the, the big conundrum in this whole uh, last expansion was where is the productivity? Um, so I don't think that changes in, in any viewpoint, at least from, from my perspective. Um, so, you know, we're talking about some very abstract ideas. We're talking about the economy. And, you know, I don't think a lot of investors really buy your newsletter and listen to your advice just to hear about the economy. How are you thinking about this in practice? So let's put on that financial advisor hat uh, for a moment. And wh- what are you talking to people about? How are you how are you helping people think through this kind of post-COVID world and how they can keep their sanity and their wits in a market that's been all over the place. Well, we're, we're looking at a situation here where we do believe the, the bridge that we initially talked about in mid-March has been built. It's been built by Jay Powell in, in association with uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. And it's taken the form of all of these facilities and rate cuts and uh, monetary expansion developed by Jay Powell, plus the the work of um, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin with Congress to get these bills passed. And so we have that bridge, and it looks like they're going to continue to maintain uh, that bridge because, as I say, I certainly expect another package to come out uh, by the end of the summer or early fall. And uh, as a matter of fact, they're going to have to address this quickly, Jeff, because, as you know, the federal unemployment uh, addition expires July 31. So there are a lot of people, a lot of people that will lose $600 a week starting the 1st of August, and uh, they're not going to be happy about it. And let us not forget, 
to overlay all of this, the icing on the cake, if you will. Oh, it just happens to be a general election year. Now, what does that mean? Well, outside the White House, it also means every single member of the House is up for re-election, the ones that are running or will get new people in where they're not. And about a third of the Senate, uh, mostly on the Republican side in this particular year, is up for re-election or a new new member into the Senate. So uh, there we are. What does that mean? That means if there's ever a time when a politician is going to be in a really positive frame of mind about giving away money, this is it. We're here. It's now. It's now. Well, and you can't fight that either. I think I think Congress has shown that, as you said, their willingness, the super tag team that they put together. I think you know we we have to have that that other leg really participate because the Fed's done a lot of what they could do. Um, speaking of that, uh, you know, you talked about that that unemployment insurance, and as of last week, the data we saw was north of 19 million people still receiving that incremental $600 per week. Uh, from the federal government, which is a, a massive injection. I mean, we talk about the helicopter money. The helicopter money was only $1,200 one time. Um, if you're someone employed, you're getting an additional $2,400 a month um, that you've been receiving for the last couple of months, and, and that is set to expire. So I think that 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 is something that's imperative. And I think you could have some wobbliness in markets if you don't get to that point. But I think you nailed it perfectly saying that that propensity and that willingness is exacerbated at this point simply due to that they're up for re-election. So given that, what do you kind of think that the budget deficit looks like? I mean, we've already spent, you know, something around the magnitude of I think the budget's increased by almost like uh, north of four trillion on its way to five trillion or so this year. Well, where do you think we actually end up? Are we just going to have to keep plugging these gaps for the foreseeable future until that bridge gets finalized and we can actually stand on our own? Well, there it is. $64 question has appeared. Now, uh, Jeff, I don't know how it is out your way, but I can tell you, and I've been looking, uh, I have not seen a deficit hawk for a long time. (laughs) Uh, As a matter of fact, if, if you were to suggest to me that deficit hawks have become extinct I would have a very difficult time challenging yeah. the notion. My, However, my joke was I, that the tea party. My joke was that the tea party turned into the Long Island Ice Tea Party, right? And they just all got drunk and forgot to be fiscal hawks again, right? However, I do know where they are. Okay. I do know where that they're all together. They're hiding on a, on a secret island that uh, we don't even know where it is. We certainly don't know the name of it. They're all there. All the deficit hawks are there, and they're alive and well, and they're waiting to pounce. And they are going to pounce in tsunami fashion if Joe Biden is elected president. And if Joe Biden is elected president, you will see every deficit hawk you ever heard of show up, and they will show up fast. And so you're saying, that they, be, you're saying that you're saying that the extinction period is about four years, is what you're saying. That they, well, they as, as I said, we don't know the result of the election, but if <laughs> if there is a change, if Joe okay. Biden is 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 elected, uh, it may not even take to inauguration day in January. You may start to see uh, the deficit hawks appear. They don't all have to appear in one day. They, I would expect them to start to appear. Right after the election, if the election results are confirmed and we know the results, 
I think you'll start to see them show up. And I think when when they start to show up, it'll be just like they showed up in 2008. Right. They showed up in 2009, I should say. They showed up uh, right after that election. And uh, they were very, very present for eight years. And then they, they vanished for since that time. And uh, I believe they'll be back if that happens uh, in terms of the election. Yeah, I wouldn't fight you on that uh, on that idea. It's probably it's, I think it's very very likely that 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 could be the case. Um, do you think that that it, do you think there's a chance that at some point, if there is a reelection of President Trump, that they would actually rear their heads again, or do you think it really is truly that political R versus D dynamic? I would say this that um, we have not seen deficit hawks for the last. Three and a half years, correct? I, I believe so. I don't know of one. I, I mean, remember? Do you remember state. when they passed the the TGCA, right? The Tax Jobs and Cut Cuts Act, or Tax Cuts Jobs Act? I don't think you want to cut jobs. So it's TCJA. And when they did that, the baseline was let's start with a trillion dollar deficit, right? So we have to make this to where it's not deficit neutral, but that it's one trillion dollars deficit is we can't have it anything more than that. That doesn't sound very hawkish to me. So I, I'm going to say three and a half years. You've, you've nailed it. Dave. I would say this, that uh, if there is, uh, if we get four more years of the current administration, that the deficit hawks will be, will remain on defense. Let's say they've been on defense for the last three and a half years uh, to the point where you haven't even been able to find one to interview one. I would say that, uh, if we get a uh, another four years of the current administration, deficit hawks will remain uh, on on defense because uh, otherwise they better get ready for a Twitter account attack. <laughs> right, exactly. So let let me pick up one more thing on that, and I'll, I'll let Sam ask some questions. So I'm hogging up all the time, as as I said, I've been excited to talk to you because I I just knew where this would go. But thinking about that, what are the implications? I mean. I don't see you as being one who who is a big proponent of this modern monetary theory or helicopter money. Um, what, what are the implications for you know the deficit over the long run? Obviously, it's going to expand, irrespective of who comes into office. We may see those hawks rear their head, but the policies are in place to have a pretty unwieldy debt to GDP ratio. So, what are your expectations, and what what implications does that have on us in kind of the medium term as a society? I think that the question here is going to be whether uh, interest rates are going to stay near zero forever, uh, which would, by the way, accommodate a modern uh, monetary theory, because what the heck, if you don't have to pay for the money, who cares? Right. Um, that's where we are right now, by the way. In my opinion, right now, we are living in a world or in the United States, maybe globally, that is uh, functioning under monetary modern monetary theory uh nobody's nobody's worrying about how much gets borrowed i mean we're we're going to have within a year or two we're going to have a 30 trillion dollar national debt we were just complaining about 20 trillion a short time ago so yeah, like two nobody, years ago <laughs> yeah. yeah nobody's nobody's concerned about this issue and the reason they're not concerned and the reason they're getting away with it if you will the reason that the the modern monetary theorists are getting away with this right now is because we're not paying for the money uh, the real interest rate on the 10-year treasury is negative 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we're getting paid to borrow uh, in real terms, which is uh, a good way to borrow if you can figure it out. So if that's if that would be sustainable, then you might get modern monetary theory to be more accepted. Uh, where does um, where does this all come to uh, fruition, one way or the other? Interest rates. If we ever get into a situation where interest rates go up, uh, if you do the math, uh, the interest on the national debt is going to be a really big number. Right. Yeah. Really big number. You, you don't have to be good at math to know that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that is what is going to drive whether modern monetary theory has legs or not. I mean, we're there now. We're living it right now. Uh, whether people talk about it or not is act, is uh, unimportant. We're, we're experiencing it right now. So we're going to get another relief package. We have uh, Jay Powell in uh, with what I call QE infinity, quantitative easing uh, infinity, which is what we have right now. Well, we'll buy as many treasuries and uh, agencies and mortgage-backed securities. How many will be? We'll buy as many as we want. Well, how much is that? Well, whatever it takes. He said it, whatever it takes. So there, that's modern monetary theory. And, uh, well, for how long will you do this? Well, we'll do it for as long as it it takes. (laughs) So uh, there's no, there's no end game, Jeff. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. People are talking about yield curve control and is that in the cards? And I'm saying, well, why does it matter at this point? The jawboning from the fed, they took, as you said, from super Mario's playbook, uh, my boss, Jeffrey Gunlock, uh, using his latest webcast, he used Superman analogy to, to Jay Powell flying through the sky um, as another superhero out there. And, you know, if you if you take the basis that, you know, they can just talk, they have credibility, um, they can just talk their way into markets saying we're not going to even think about we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. That's what Powell said at his press conference. Right. He's essentially giving you yield curve control, at least on the front end, let's say out to the you know, out to at least three to five years. They haven't moved a lot since then. As Sam pointed out, the tenure moved a basis point <laughs> over the course of the quarter. So the market is believing the Fed. Do you think there's a point where the Fed loses credibility or can they just continue to talk their way into this? I mean, we see this with the corporate bond market. They, the, you know, when it came to actually investing in these, um, you know, the, the liquidity facilities that buy corporate bonds, that uh, ultimately the market had already priced it all in. And when Powell was asked about uh, by Congress, why did you why did you why did you buy the program? He said, well, because we said we would. Right. And so this is a, trying to deliver on the credibility. So I get the question I'm, I'm trying to get to is what do what do you think could shake the Fed's credibility, or at least the market sense of that the Fed continues to have that credibility? Well, I think if the pandemic comes to an end, which means we would have a um a workable vaccine solution. If we get to that uh, point somewhere down the road, and I certainly hope we do, uh, then I think uh, if he continues this while the economy is getting better, then we might have to look at the inflation figures. And if they start to act up, then he's going to have to do something different. Right. Well, when I was studying um, or trying to research, I should say, yield curve control, that seems to be what happened in the U.S. back after World War II. Uh, they instituted the yield curve control. Then the Fed got worried about inflation. So even though they had this yield curve control, and back then it was that we'll buy anything, um, 
make sure that yields stay below X. I think at the time it was like 3% um, that they would be a purchaser. And they didn't have to buy a lot. But then all of a sudden inflation came in. They started hiking rates. They inverted the curve. And they're saying, well, now we, in order to kind of maintain that 3%, we have to do is go ahead and buy a lot. So they really had to expand their balance sheet there. So, um, and I'm I'm sure Jeff, you read through the uh, FOMC minutes, uh, Federal Open Market Committee minutes for June, and, and my favorite quote was this. This is amazing. Uh, the economic, the econometric simulations suggest that the committee would have to maintain highly accommodative financial conditions for many years to quicken meaningfully the recovery from the current severe downturn, unquote. We have never seen rhetoric like this from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Well, on that point, we've been, we've been noting that, you know, people talk about accommodative conditions, but remember, we have been accommodative since 2009, right? These policies have been loose. They've been very free. Yes, we tried to hike rates, or they did. They were successful in hiking rates 10 times. Uh, they got to the point where they could start to barely unwind the balance sheet and the markets freaked out. And so uh, it's it's hard to say that, you know, for the foreseeable future of having these highly accommodated policies is really any different than what we've been operating on for the last, you know, uh, let's call it 12 years. Absolutely true. Hey, Bob, I had a question here, uh, jumping on this conversation. You know, so we were talking about all the money printing, you know, yield curve control seems like a an issue that uh, we'll we'll be facing in the in the short, you know, in the short or near term. Um, but something that you mentioned previously, you know, it's you're talking about how the federal debt will you know, outstanding is going to quickly reach 30 trillion. I mean, we, you know, we're definitely on pace for that. Um, right now, I think the the public debt is right around 26 trillion, and we have a GDP of just around 21 trillion. So that's about 120 percent of debt to GDP that we're sitting on. If we move up to 30 trillion, you know, the the economy is a little bit slow. It's had a hiccup, you know, since since March. We're well over. You know, we could easily get over 150 percent debt to GDP. So. I guess my question is, with all of this money printing, with all this appetite for taking on debt, um, what's the end game? How do we finally get out of this? When is the FOMC minutes going to start to reflect some type of conversation around how we're going to you know, get out from this uh, mountain of debt that uh, we're quickly embarking on, or we're already in? Well, um, I'll answer that with a quote from the July edition of the investment letter. Quote, as far as paying off debt is concerned, there are very few instances in history where any government has paid off debt, unquote, Walter Riston years ago. He's absolutely right. Uh, the notion of paying off debt is absurd. All we're going to do is add to debt. We're not running any uh, fiscal surpluses for the foreseeable future, if any time in the future. So what we have right now is a situation where uh, as long as we have essentially zero interest rates or even negative real interest rates as we do right now, uh, they can borrow as much money as they want, and it's not going to really make any difference because it's free money. Uh, what, what will happen if rates go up is then people will have to pay attention to this matter. Until rates go up, uh, I think this is going to continue. Yeah, well, that's the, the vicious cycle here is that, you know, you have low rates so you can borrow more. 
um, and then you borrow more. And so some people say that that becomes tautologically true, that the rates can't go up. And can't's a dangerous word in this business, as we all know. Uh, you don't want to say anything can't happen. We never thought that the Fed would be buying corporate bonds or at least providing support to do that. As you'd mentioned, the creativity of Congress. So uh, we've got to be careful with those can't. So uh, before we let you go, Bob, too, I want to ask one more thing, too, because you just you have this mentorship and the way you speak, it's so eloquent, too. Maybe you, could you give some advice to our listeners, too, of some of the things you've learned over the years? Like what's some of the most important things that you've learned um, if you were to go back in time, the time machine to when you're starting off on your your radio show and your newsletters and you're still working, what advice could you give to people to to really be a better investor? I think it, it's a, well, that's a great question. And at a time like this, I think the most important thing, especially this year, has been to keep emotion out of your investment decisions. That's what we did this year well, we always practice this, but we showed that this year when we maintained our fully invested position, even though there was that very brief panic in March, we maintained our fully invested position. We told our subscribers to dollar cost average additional money into the market as they wished, and look what's happened to the market. The market is back near all-time record highs and it turned out that that panic was uh, so brief, it, it's, it's hard to imagine. So how do you make the right decision at a time like that, a crucial time like that, when if you allow emotion into your investment decisions, you can make a disastrous decision, such as selling out in March? Um, right. And then how do you recover from that? I don't have an answer for that. So... Uh, keeping emotion out of your investment decisions, I think, is the single most important thing. And I think the other thing is to make sure that your investments are diversified. They must be diversified, and, uh, and that is a core element of investing. Yeah, it's it's always the the emotional side that really gets people too during these, uh, especially during these wild roller coaster rides. You know, on the back of Sherman's question, asking for advice for, for our listeners, I'd like to take this opportunity as well. You know, you've spent well over 30 years on the air. That's, uh, you know, 10 times longer than Jeff and I have spent on these podcasts. So I was hoping to, to re you know, if you could give us some type of pointers to, to Jeff and myself uh, for for a longer, you know, for a, for a successful podcast type of track record. We started this first with the first podcast back in 2017, I believe it was, right, Jeff, with uh, Professor Schiller. So it's only just over three years that we've uh, been in this game. Yeah, as I'd mentioned, in this market, it feels like 30 years. But yeah, <laughs> what, what else, uh, what, what have you seen that works really well to your listeners and what you've gotten great feedback on over the years, Bob? Well, we did, uh, in the last 10 years of our 32-year run on Money Talk, uh, we did a guest hour, the third hour of our broadcast. Uh, we had a guest, in fact, uh, we've had uh, um, uh, really an all-star list of guests. I mean, uh, from uh, Bill Sharp to Burton Malkiel to uh, to John Bogle. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's incredible uh, the, the people that we were able to have on. So, uh, first of all, you deserve uh, a lot of credit for your guest decision today. And <laughs> and, and second of second of all, I would keep it up. Keep. Uh, booking uh, great guests and uh, you're going to have a fantastic run. 
Well, well, thank you for that. And we really appreciate your time. And like I said, we've, we've been trying to get you on for a long time. But there is one thing before you leave. We got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam, why don't you kick that off? All right. And, Bob, this my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts to you and Jeff to which you'll provide a top of mind response. I'm going to start out with the first prompt for Sherman with educational entertainment. I don't know what that phrase means. What does that, that mean? That's, uh, give us a little color on that, Sam. Yeah, yeah. What are you trying to? <laughs> what are you getting at? <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, you know, so I, I did a little research on that myself, and it seems like it's the, you know, the combination of of, of educational purposes uh, combined with uh, entertainment. You know, giving well, an education. Okay, I got it. And Walt Disney was the first person to come up with this concept. So it's Sherman Show. I mean, we're we're educational and we're trying to entertain. Right. There you go. Right. Uh, so the next one is going to come to you, Bob. It's uh, radio versus podcasts. Well, I think there's a great future for podcasts. Uh, I am not uh, optimistic about the future for radio. I think that by laying off uh, a tremendous percentage of the employees and the talent in the radio business, the radio business is heading south very fast. But I think the podcasting business has a great future. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it seems to require fewer resources as well. You know, we have yeah. two guys in the Bloomberg, and here we got two guys, you know, a couple guys on the, uh, and an app. <laughs> so, uh, this next one's going to go out to you, Sherman, with PPP. Important. Bob, future of commu- commercial real estate. Whoa. Uh, Right now, dicey because I think a lot less people are going to need office space. Yeah, definitely seems that to be the case. Sherman? Yeah, if you want to get bearish on, I tell everybody, if you want to get bearish on on office space in the commercial real estate, just go to our office in downtown Los Angeles. And um, it's a ghost town there. The The whole area, the whole building. Uh, it's kind of eerie. So um, anyway, just one anecdotal data point. You got to imagine the pain that all the uh, support businesses, you know, are feeling too. The ones that depend on foot traffic around the office, spa- you know, around office space as well. So it's right. just, the knock-on effects are huge. Um, I lost track here. I think uh, this next one for you, Sherman, is uh, Hong Kong. Challenged. Bob, productivity growth. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get productivity growth higher than it's been over the last 10 years. All right. Uh, Sherman, critical mass. <laughs> Bob Brinker. <laughs> hey, Bob, I'm going to let you chime in on that one as well. Yeah. So let them know why I said that, Bob. Well, critical mass is a, is a fantastic notion. Once you take hold of it, you have to take hold of it. And you have to realize that your, your, your financial goal should be that you're going to get to a point, if you can, where you don't have to work because you can live off of the investment income in your portfolio. That's a magic land and a magic aspiration. And many people are there. Sounds like attaining nirvana. Um, 
so the next one for Sherman is source of happiness. Investing. All right. And the final one here for uh, Bob and for the show is 2020. A year to be remembered. <laughs> I would say that if we don't have 2020 vision coming into 2020. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we'll leave it on that light note. So, Bob, before we let you go, can you tell our listeners where they can get access to your research, how you're thinking, uh, give them uh, how they can get in touch with you? Well, of course, uh, our website is bobbrinker.com, and uh, that's where uh, those interested can uh, get information on the Market Timer Investment Letter, which is now in its 35th year. It's a monthly publication, and we do have the ability to put out interim communications as needed. And uh, right there at the website, bobbrinker.com. All right, Bob. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate it. Like I said, you're someone we've been following for many years. We think you'd give a lot of great advice out there, just telling, telling people, you know, how, how to really get to that critical mass and, you know, um, giving them good guidance on how to continue to invest. So we appreciate the time. Thanks for spending uh, your afternoon with us today, and we wish you well in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And so for our listeners out there, uh, we can get the podcast nowadays. You can get it on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. SoundCloud. Uh, but again, uh, if you have any feedback, you can reach out to us, Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com and make sure you follow us on the Twitter. Uh, the Twitter account is at Sherman Show Pod, all one word, at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, we'll put up some nice replays of uh, some of Bob's quotes today. We'll accompany with some charts and uh, you can always stay tuned for our next guest. So we'll be back next week and look forward to speaking at you then. Take care. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.